did want to mention one other thing to you. A few months ago, we shifted our service times to 10 and 11.30 a.m. And the reason we made those shifts was to give us a little more breathing room in our kids' ministry. If you couldn't tell, we've got more kids to be dedicated at our next service, and our kids' ministry is growing like crazy, and it's a good problem to have. There are churches all over our city that wish they had that problem. And so as a result, our kids' ministry has just been jam-packed. And so we've asked some people to make some shifts, and we shifted our service times, and that, that has helped us so much. It's given us breathing room in there. And so I just want to say thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for working with us on that. Uh, because it's doing exactly what we needed to do, and we're, we're seeing some balance there. So again, thank you for being um, patient with us and uh, being faithful to the Lord in spite of some of these changes that, that we've made. So thank you again for doing that. Um, I'm excited about what God is doing here, because again, it's not about me, it's about God. It's not about you, it's about God. And so I'm excited to see God bring increase, and it's not just people, but it's people are growing in their walk, people are getting saved, and it's, it's fun to be a part of that. So again, thank you for that. Um, today we're starting a new series, and we're going to be walking over the next eight weeks through the book of Philippians. <clears throat> and I felt like God's title for the book of Philippians was so good, I wouldn't change it. So the title of this, this series is Philippians. It's not very creative, but God used it, so I'm copying off of him. Um, and we're starting today in Philippians chapter one, and we are literally going to go um, just passage by passage and walk through this over the next eight weeks. And we are not going to do it justice. If I was wanting to do uh, it, do it like we really could do it. We could spend uh, six months on the book of Philippians. It's four chapters. Uh, but uh, instead, we're going to tackle it in eight weeks. We're going to take some bites out of this and try to go a little deeper in our faith, a little deeper in our understanding and knowledge. Because a lot of times we look at Scripture and we go, okay, um, I get it. It's Philippians, but I don't, I don't understand the context. What does it mean? What's going on? And we read the words, but they don't make a lot of sense to us at times because we don't understand who it was written to or why it was written or the time it was written in. So we're going to look at that a little bit over the next few weeks. And please don't miss next week. Um, one of the churches we support is Adventure Church in Columbus, Ohio. And the pastor of that church, that church plant, is going to be with us next week. He's going to be preaching, and I promise you, you will not want to miss it. It's going to be dynamic. He and I talked about his sermon this week. We, we talked about what he was going to be going through, and I promise you will not want to miss it. So be here next week to hear Kyle Hammond bring the word as we continue this series. Uh, the church in Philippi, or let me start with the city of Philippi. Um, it's modern-day Philippi is in Greece. It's on the eastern side, kind of northeastern Greece. Uh, but it, when it was founded, it was founded by a Macedonian king named Philip II. And of course, like any king, he named it after himself, and uh, Philippi was born. It really didn't do a whole lot. There was a, a gold mine near the city, west of the city, and it was never a huge metropolis. Some of the other cities that, that Paul went to and started churches were much larger, like Ephesus. Um, the, the church, the, the Corinthian church was much larger. The city was much larger, but Philippi was a smaller city. And so uh, if, if you're familiar with your history, um, Julius Caesar was assassinated by Brutus and to, to avenge his death, death, Mark Antony and Octavius, they went and hunted down Brutus and his conspirators, and they, bought, they fought this battle, and it was this, this huge battle at Philippi. And that's one of the only reasons a lot of people in, in this time knew where Philippi was, because that's where this battle took place. After the battle took place, they had all these Roman soldiers on the far kind of stretches in the far eastern side, and they said, we don't want to take all these soldiers back to, to Rome. We did, they're not even Italy. So what they did is they made them a deal and said, if you want to settle here, we're going to let you settle in Philippi, 
Uh, we'll have a garrison here. We'll, you know, we'll have uh, some of our citizens here, and we're going to let you live here tax-free. Now, I know we've got some people in our church that, that take advantage of tax-free living. They like to go to Florida for about half the year, and, and they understand the importance of not having to pay some taxes. And so they took advantage of this and said, hey, listen, how many of you don't want to pay taxes? You can stay here. And a lot of them did that. And not just at that moment, but later you saw a lot of Roman soldiers, they would retire, they would finish their service, and they would move to Philippi. And so as a result, by the time Paul gets on the scene, uh, these were not just people that were part of a, a Roman province, they were Roman in their thought and their actions, who they were and their identity. They were Roman to the core, to the bone. They were Roman. Um, today, uh, there's not a whole lot in Philippi still. It's still a, a small town. Uh, at its peak, there were several thousand, but it was never a thriving metropolis like, like I said, some of the other cities were. Um, when Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he wrote this letter in conjunction around the same time he wrote several other letters. So uh, he wrote the, the letter, uh, the book of Ephesus, I'm sorry, Ephesians to the letter or to the church at Ephesus. He wrote it about the same time. So Ephesians, Philippians, um, Philemon, and then um, what was the other one? Colossians. Um, he wrote all these about the same time. So if you look at the books, if you're reading through Scripture, sometimes he's going to repeat himself, or sometimes you see a similar thought, or you'll see a word or, or, or a phrase that's similar in the books, and it's because he wrote them about the same time, and things that were kind of on his heart were kind of on his heart with all these churches. So there are a few similarities between the letters that he wrote, but there are some dramatic differences. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians um, this is one of the epistles of Paul to the church of Corinth, and it is scathing in a lot of ways. He is undressing this church and telling them why they did wrong and how they did wrong and what they needed to do right, and he was hold, not holding anything back. This is like the Pentecostal preacher, you know, the preacher that, he does say it, the Lord, uh, you know what I mean? Like they have to add uh to the end of their words to more emphasis. You know what I'm talking about? Have you seen preachers like this? Okay, this is what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians when he was writing the letter. He was, he was getting on their case. But the letter to the church of Philippi was dramatically different. This is one of the only letters he wrote that wasn't for correction of doctrine. It wasn't for, hey, um, you guys don't need to be doing crazy things, immoral things, explicit things, relationally. You know, he, stop doing this, start doing this. It, the letter to the church at Philippi was much different. In tone and feel, it looked different than that. And so uh, when you look at it... Um, you have to ask, okay, why was he writing this letter? And let me just hit a couple of these real quick. Number one, he was writing the letter to the church at Philippi as a thanks because he was a missionary in a lot of ways. He was a church planner. And so he, he needed people to support him. He was a, a, a tent maker by day. He made some money, but he needed people to support him. And so these churches that he planted would help support him along the way. And the church at Philippi was very, very faithful about blessing him. And so they took care of him. They sent him uh, money. They sent him supplies, what he needed to do. So he was writing to say thanks. He was writing to inform them that Epaphroditus and Timothy, who were with him on this journey, they were like associates with him. He, he was saying, hey, church, they're going to come back and visit you before long. So just get ready for that. So he was letting them know about that. And then one of the things I love about the, the book of Philippians is that it was a healthy church. It was, um, it, it was in pretty good shape. It, when I started looking for a church, uh, I sat down with a, um, a consultant, the church consultant that I know, and he works with churches all over the country. And he said, Mel, tell me what kind of church you're looking for. 
And I said, man, Ed, I would love to find a healthy church. That's really what I'm looking for in a church. And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. And he said, I don't know what your other criteria are, but you're never going to find a healthy church to pastor. Uh, if, if they're looking for a pastor, they're probably not healthy. They might be healthier than other churches, but they're not going to be super healthy. So just understand that. So, thought, all right, I got it. That helped me frame myself a little bit. I don't think Ed understood that uh, this church is in pretty good shape. Now, we're not perfect. We got some issues from time to time, but we're not bad. And this is kind of what the church in Philippi was like. They had some issues. They had some problems. We see that even in in Philippians chapter 4, Paul addresses it just a little bit. But by and large, there weren't huge doctrinal issues to fix like there were in other towns. And so instead of saying, hey, fix this, he was really writing to encourage them, saying, hey, continue to grow in your faith. You love Jesus, and that's great, but don't be satisfied with just loving Jesus. It's important for you to grow in, in your walk with the Lord. Don't be satisfied. Does that make sense? So he said, I want to encourage you. Doing great, but don't stop there. Keep going. And the last thing, um, the Philippian church was special to Paul. Um, I know you're not supposed to have favorites. Like if you're a teacher, I know we got some school teachers. You're not supposed to have a favorite student. But if you're honest, you do. Right? We're not supposed to admit that, but you do. Um, And we're not supposed to have favorite kids, but I do. Don't tell my daughters. I tell each of them that they're my favorite. No, I, I'm, I don't have a favorite daughter. I'm just kidding. Um, but the truth is, there are people that we just connect with better than others at times. And this is the way the church of Philippi was with Paul. He just connected well with them. And one of the reasons that he connected well with them was that they were the first church that he started in Europe. Let me get in. It's really cool because it talks about his journey and how he got connected and how the church really started. And I won't read all this, but just for reference, it's in Acts chapter 16. In verse 6, Paul was going about his business. He and some of his associates, they were preaching throughout uh, southern Asia, and they were planting churches. They were having a lot of success. And he has this dream. He has this vision. The voice of the Lord comes to him in his sleep, and he has this vision. And in the vision, there's a man, a Macedonian man, and he says, come over here and help us. We need help. We can't do this on our own. And Paul wakes from this vision and says, okay, let's go. And he goes on this this, this journey that he walks through Asia and skips Asia in order to get to Macedonia and, and preach the gospel. When they arrive, they come to Philippi. And in, Philipp, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 16, verse 11, um, Paul's in Phil, uh, Philippi, and he's looking for a place to worship. And uh, it was a pretty diverse city in that there were a lot of different beliefs and cultures. Romans, uh, Rome was polytheistic, so they believed in a lot of different gods. And they just kind of let everybody believe what they wanted to. And so Paul was looking for a place to worship. And he went outside of town and he found this group of ladies. And they were having a Bible study. And I just imagine, you know, they're, they've got sitting around a TV, they're watching Beth Moore. Or, you know, there's something like that. They're sitting there and they're having this Bible study. And they're studying the law. And Paul shows up and he invades their Bible study, takes over their Bible study, basically. And he meets this woman, this, he encounters this woman named Lydia. And uh, there are... There are people who believe that women should not have any kind of prominent roles in churches, that believe that that women shouldn't teach, shouldn't preach, shouldn't have leadership roles. And I will tell you, Paul, um, he addresses that in specific cases, but by and large, like in this case in the church in in Philippi, Lydia, a woman, was one of the, the catalysts for starting this church. He meets Lydia, and they talk, and she was a wealthy woman. The Bible says that she was a dealer of purple. And so what it means is uh, she probably had some influence in the fashion industry or in fabrics, and and she imported and made fabric, and she was very wealthy. Now, purple was... uh, 
Now, I'm wearing purple today. I didn't intend on that. It just happened like that. My wife buys me purple sometimes, okay? So don't judge me. Um, but she was a dealer in purple. She, she was probably wealthy. She wasn't from there. She was from Asia, so, and she had a home there. She lived there. I would imagine she had some money. And he meets this woman, and I know Paul wasn't thinking, okay, this lady's going to fund my ministry if I can just suck up to her. But he got to know her. He, she connected with him. He, he was talking through things with her. She was a, a Roman, um, in a Roman city, she thought, and processed in a Roman Greco kind of way. And I think she was very analytic. And he walked her through and talked to her about Christ and who Christ was. And she became a follower of Jesus. Some time goes by, and, and Paul is preaching, and there is a girl, a young girl. The Bible doesn't say how old she is. She's, she's um, demon-possessed, and she's been making money for her owner. She was literally in human trafficking. She was owned by some men who made money off her because the demon would prophesy the future of people. I mean, she was a fortune teller. And she was going along, and she was proclaiming in a mocking way who Paul was, that they were the servants of God. And, and Paul he stops her and he doesn't say, young girl, who are you? May I speak with you? And let me have this rational conversation with you like he did with Lydia. Why? Because Lydia and this girl could not have been further apart, right? This girl probably didn't have anything to her name. She literally was a slave. Lydia was a wealthy woman, well-to-do. She, she processed things in a different kind of way. So what did he do? He approached this little girl and he cast the demon out. And you think this is a good day. People would celebrate, right? This girl's transformed. Her life has changed. But her owners were pretty ticked because her ability to see the future was gone. And they said, wait a second. So they had Paul thrown in jail. And I don't know if you know this, when you're in jail, um, two things. Number one, um, a lot of times they wouldn't feed you in prison. And some of you are like, hey, that sounds like it might be a good deal for today. We cut the budget a little bit. Uh, but they didn't feed you. You were responsible for having your own food. And so Paul, was res- Paul depended on churches to send money to buy him food for his incarceration. And the other thing was, when you see that he was shackled, like the Bible describes it in Acts, um, it wasn't, you know, sometimes we see we have this mental image of the Old West where, um, you know, you, you're in the, the stocks and, you know, you're standing there and you're a laughing stock and people are walking by. That's the image we have. Or we have this image of being shackled and we're sitting in a jail and we're running the cup over the bars. Nobody knows my trouble. You know, like that's what we, we envision. But what they would do is they would take these stocks and they would contort your body into crazy positions, and they would bind you up in those positions. So it wasn't like you were stocked and chained and you could just walk around. They were oftentimes put in uncomfortable positions so that they would begin to cramp up, so that their, their muscles would begin to seize. So they were uncomfortable. And this is, this is Paul and Silas. This is where they're at. They're locked up for preaching the gospel. They've witnessed to Lydia. They've cast this demon out of this girl. And here they are in jail, and um, they just begin singing. Don't you know this is what I would do if I was, you know, in jail in the middle of the night, body contorted in awful positions? I would probably begin singing worship songs to God, right? Uh, not me. Like, I'm the pastor here. I would probably be complaining, God, why do you hate me so much? You must hate me, you know? I'd be feeling sorry for myself. I'd be wondering why somebody didn't get me out of this mess. I would be going through all kinds of things. I don't know that I, would be, that I would be singing worship songs. This is what it says, though, in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, 
Suddenly is one of those words we didn't talk about in our last series, in our story series. But suddenly is a word it's, it, that things happen in our lives. Sometimes they happen slowly, but sometimes God does something suddenly in our lives. And some of you are waiting for a suddenly moment to happen. And it might not be coming for a while. It might take a while, but it will happen if you trust God. They're sitting there. They're contorted. They're, they're singing. They're praying. And suddenly there was a great, great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prisoner, prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, you might have heard this before, but the, the captor was responsible for the people inside. If the people inside escaped, then he was as good as dead. They would take his life as punishment for the prisoners escaping. And when he saw that the prison doors were open, he could not fathom that anybody would still be inside. Would you still be inside? Not me. I would have taken off running. As soon as, you know, I'm stretching the cramp out, I'm, ah, ah, ah. You know, I'm getting out the door as fast as I can. Because he had contorted them, he had put them in this place, and they could have said, we're going to get out of here and it's going to cost this guy's life. So he was ready to take his own life. He takes the sword. He's ready to fall on his sword. And then this incredible thing happens. But in verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's pretty cool. I don't know what has happened in your life lately, but I would be willing to bet there haven't been many of us that have been approached by people, you know, walking through the grocery store, you stop to get gas and somebody walks up to you and goes, excuse me, sir, what can I do to be saved? Most of us don't have these kind of conversations, but the truth is most of us aren't going through the things that Paul was going through either. We see this in, first, in Philippians chapter one, but when we suffer well, people notice that. They see that and God is glorified through that. This jailer sees what, that was, what was going on, what he had put them through, and he sees the miraculous work of God, and he goes, okay, you know what? I got to know about this. I got, what is going on here? I, I have to be saved. And he gives his life to Jesus Christ. He becomes a follower of Jesus in that moment. And when you look at this, this is the development, this is the formation of the church in Philippi. You have this rich, aristocratic woman. You've got this uh, demon-possessed little girl. You've got this Roman jailer who probably was buff and gruff and mean, and he looked like he was on one of these, you know, like a heavy, like pro wrestler or something. I mean, he was a, I could imagine he was a big guy. And you have these three people, totally diverse, totally different. And this is the foundation of the church. One thing we can see is that Paul approached them all differently didn't he? He didn't approach them all the same way. He knew it wasn't one size fits all. So he approached them differently. They responded differently because of their background, because of their, their history. We see that as the church formed, I don't know if these three people were in the church. We know Lydia was long term, but I don't know about the, the little girl. I don't know about the Roman soldier, but the truth is I can imagine that the church in Philippi was very diverse. Even our church, we look around and you can look at this church and go, okay, there's a lot of similarities here. But if you look a little deeper, there's a lot of differences. All of us come from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. We all have different jobs, different workplaces. We might live in the same geographic area, but there are a lot of differences among us. 
But it's not our differences that unite us, it's our similarities, that we come together under the banner of Jesus Christ and say, you know what, I don't know how you were raised religiously, I don't know if you had a religious background, but we're coming together to worship Jesus. And this is what the church at Philippi did. They said, we have some differences, but our differences aren't what matter. What matters is our similarities. What matters is the thing that brings us together. Our common ground is Jesus Christ. And that's what they did. They came together and they worshiped. In first Philipp- I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 1, that was the longest introduction to a message you've ever heard in your life, isn't it? Philippians chapter 1, let me get into this. This is what it says in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a fairly typical greeting uh, to the churches that he would write letters to. Verse 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for, all, uh, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership, and this word partnership here, um, he's talking about their financial partnership, he's talking about them partnering with him in prayer, but he's talking about them working together for something bigger. That's really what he means. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will, com- will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever heard this verse before? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you've been in church, you might have heard it before. Now, I have heard this verse misquoted uh, and said, uh, you know, they leave off the last part. They say, and I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And people go, yes, okay. God started something in me and he's going to bring it to completion. And the truth is, he will bring it to completion. But... The way he finishes that is at the day of Jesus Christ. He says, God's going to bring whatever he started in you. He's going to bring that to completion. Now, it might not happen till the day we are raptured, till the day we are in heaven. That's when we might be completed in Christ. So I don't want to discourage you there, but God has started to work in every one of us. There was a guy I was speaking with before church today. He said, I don't have it all figured out, but someday I might. And I said, if you ever get it figured out, you're going to be translated into heaven. We'll never have it figured out. We're never going to get to the point where we go, okay, I I understand everything I need to know about my walk with Christ. We're continually growing in that. We're not perfected. God hasn't completed us yet, but we will be completed someday. Some of you have been praying for things in your life. You've been praying, God, can you please bring this thing to completion? I don't know how that's going to work out, but I can tell you someday it's all going to be resolved and God's going to be glorified through it if you just trust Jesus through it. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. And remember, this is a church, it was his first church he planted in Europe, the very first place he preached in Europe. So these people are special to him. He, he, saw a lot of these people in this church saved. He was their spiritual father in so many ways. And so he feels differently about this church than he does other churches. He says, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for, all, uh, for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this is strong language, isn't it? This isn't just, this isn't just, Hey, love ya. You too. When I, I was a guy, you know, I was a guy. I am a guy. <laughs> when I was a young guy, how about that? Um, you know, I date girls. I only told one girl I ever dated that I loved her, and it's my wife. But I would have girls go, hey, love you. And I go, you too. 
And the truth is, I didn't love them, or I would have said it. I liked them. They were nice. They were pretty. But I didn't love them. And this is what Paul is saying. He's not just saying, you too, I like you. All right. Hey, do you, do you want to be my friend? Check yes, no, maybe. You know, it's not how Paul worked. Paul is expressing his love for these people in a deep, real, genuine way. He's saying, I've, I've experienced some junk with you guys. I've been through it. We are connected emotionally, relationally. I am with you on this. And he says, with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, the same way Jesus loves you, that's how I feel like I love you. That's powerful. How many people in your life do you love like that? How many people do you love with the affection of Christ Jesus? I would venture to say not as many as we should. And this is what Paul said. I love you this kind of way. In verse 9 it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Not just to Paul, but he's saying to each other. With knowledge and all discernment. So he's saying, as you grow in your walk with Christ Jesus, my hope is that you will learn to love more and what it really means to love more. Does that make sense? He's saying, I want you to grow so you understand what it means to really love. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Not, Not our righteousness, because we have no righteousness. But he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. And we see this over and over and over again as Paul writes And he says, my righteousness is a filthy rags, right? And he makes it very clear, our righteousness is not our own, it comes from Christ Jesus. That anything good about us is because Jesus Christ is alive in us. And he says, to the glory and praise of our God. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He says, I've been imprisoned, I'm in jail for preaching the gospel, but it's okay because it served to advance the gospel. The gospel has progressed because of my imprisonment. Many of us don't look at our affliction that way and say, hey, good news, the, the check bounced, but it's going to further God's kingdom somehow. I don't know how, but it's going it's, to, hey, I lost my job. Woo, God's kingdom's advancing, right? We don't look at affliction that way. We don't look at it when somebody opposes us We don't look at it and go, okay, you know what? This is God sanctifying me and growing me, um, but God is being glorified through this. We don't look at it that way, but this is what Paul is saying. I am imprisoned, and it's furthering the kingdom of God. It's advancing the gospel so that it may become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ Jesus. (laughs) How incredible is this? This man is imprisoned, and he said, you know what? This is for Christ. I don't know what he's doing or how he's working, but I know that right now God is using this time. You know what proof of that? He wrote letters to the churches that we are still reading today from prison. He, he utilized his prison time to further the kingdom of God. Some of you feel like you are imprisoned spiritually. You feel like God has called you to do something and you're waiting to do it. And Okay, God, I'm wanting to go do this. And you feel like you're in a holding pattern, uh, circling the runway, waiting to land. And you're just wondering, when am I going to be released? When can I go do what God's calling me to do? And you are wasting your prison time. Paul didn't waste that time. He said, I'm going to get busy and I'm going to encourage the church by writing letters. Even in the predicament I'm in, I'm in jail. And there was an excellent chance he was not going to make, out of it, make it out of there alive. And he said, but I'm going to write letters and I'm going to encourage the churches and let them know that God still has a plan for them. That God's not through with them yet. God wants you to utilize your prison time. Don't waste it. Do something with it. Verse 14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, because 
They've seen me go through what I'm going through. They've been emboldened. The, the, the followers, the, the other believers in Rome at that time, they've become emboldened by Paul's experience. And they said, you know what? Instead of shrinking back and saying, man, we might be in prison too, they've been emboldened to preach the gospel with more power and authority than ever before because they saw how he suffered and he was suffering well. Verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Let me stop right there. Let me explain this to you. Um, you might have read this before, but when Paul planted a church, he was a strong leader. And when he would start a church in an area, he would stay there for a year or two years at times, and then he would leave and go start another church. And when he would leave, there was a vacuum of leadership at times, and people would begin to rise up. And not everybody liked Paul. He was the Apostle Paul. You'd think everybody would like him, but not everybody did. People would rise up, and some of them would say, you know what, Paul preached this, but this is, what, this is what it really is like. This is the true gospel. This is how it should be. And some of them just had it out for Paul. So they would, they would oppose him just because. And so there were rivalries even among preachers. And this is what Paul says. He says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is what he's saying. Some of them, they're motivated by other things other than, than Christ's love. He said, some of them just have it in for me. And that's why they're preaching against me. That's why they don't like me, whatever it might be. This is what he's saying. And he said, and this is the powerful part. In verse 18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is what Paul says. He says, I don't know what motivates people to do what they do. But the truth is, they're preaching Jesus. No matter what their motivation is, they're preaching Jesus, and lives are being changed. And, and it kind of goes back to this question I used to have when I was um, starting off. Why does Jesus use flawed people. We, we see high-profile ministers that get into trouble and they fall. Um, and you know some of them back, you know, back in the day, Jimmy Swaggart. I mean, I heard stories about this guy, how he would um, go down to the, the seedy part of New Orleans and do uh, totally ungodly things. But then on Sunday morning, he'd be in the pulpit and hundreds of people would get saved. And I think, why, God, would you do that? And this is why God would do that. Not because he loves Jimmy Swaggart so much he's going to do that, but because he loves people so much he's going to use somebody like that, even if it's just for a season to bring people to him. He has such a heart for lost people that he uses people like Jimmy Swaggart. He uses people like me. He uses people like every pastor in this community who is flawed and messed up and has baggage. He loves people so much, he uses flawed instruments like us in order to bring the gospel. And Paul says, I don't know what their motivation is, but they're preaching Jesus. And so I don't care why they're doing what they're doing, but Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That's something we have to learn to really love, that Christ is proclaimed. And I'm going to rejoice in that. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't understand. I don't know the circumstance I'm in. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But you know what? Christ is going to be glorified through my circumstance, through my prison time, through my junk that I'm going through. And I'm going to proclaim that. I'm going to be excited because Jesus Christ is being proclaimed in this. And I'm going to celebrate it. It's hard to do. Sermons are easy to preach, but they're hard to live. I understand this firsthand. But this is what God wants for us. God doesn't care what your background is. He doesn't care what you're going through today. He wants you to say, you know what? No matter what it is, I don't understand it, but I'm going to proclaim Christ through it, and he's going to be glorified. Let's pray.